Well, we're in Judges chapter 4 tonight, so we're going to be reading um, a lot of the chapter, but not all, all right? So let's take a look there in verse number 1. going to be reading down through the first 16 verses. going to ta- catch two more verses at the end. I'll let you know when we're going to shift from where we are. Verse number 1 of Judges chapter 4, And the people of Israel again did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoyim. Some translations, that's basically leaving the Hebrew. Um, You might be used to seeing this as Harasheth of the Gentiles or Harasheth of the nations. Anyway, then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kedesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 of the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, I will go, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will deliver, will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kedesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kedesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as Zanunim, which is near Kedesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Harasheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harasheth Hagoyim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. Now drop down to the last two verses, 23 and 24. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. We'll stop and have a word of prayer, then we'll look into the message here for tonight. Father, thank you so much for your loving kindness. Thank you that we have the Bible. We're so grateful for your word, Lord. We just, it it boggles our minds to think of 
living in the generations of many of the people of the Bible who didn't have your word as we have it today and how it seems like we're so weak today. We have all of this and we make such little use of it. And I pray, Lord, that you will forgive us for not uh, redeeming the time every day when we have the opportunity to read God's word, to study it, to meditate on it. But we have today, we have the special day that you've given us, the Lord's day, and commanded us to set it apart. And we're in a place where we have freedom and the Bible is readily available to us. And so we give you thanks and praise. And just pray, Father, that you will take over here in the service tonight to accomplish the spiritual good that you desire through the message. Keep me, Lord, from those pathways and words which may not be profitable tonight and simply allow to flow from my lips the message that you have in as warm a practical and economical way as is possible. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart might be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. For I pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. We are continuing with this loose theme of women facing hardship, travel, affliction, difficulty. Women face overcoming affliction, difficulty, challenges. And... I just remind you quickly of the ground that we've come over because we looked at Naomi and we saw the challenge, the adversity that she overcame in her life was bitterness. We spent uh, a lot of time with that because we actually looked at the the book of Ruth basically in total. But then last week we looked at Rahab and saw the difficulty or adversity that she had in her life with shame. We saw how God provided grace in her life and that redemption is the pathway to overcome shame. Tonight I want to present a message to you tonight that I've entitled Deborah overcoming lagging leadership. And I think when you ponder this for a moment, you can't escape really the overall impression of these two chapters. Now, they go together even though we didn't read anything right now out of chapter 5. But you have chapter 4, you have chapter 5. Chapter 5 is essentially a hymn of praise that goes forth from Deborah and uh, Barak as well as a result of the great victory that God gave. But... The overall impression, clearly, I think, from this chapter, I don't think you can read this and get away from the fact that it just seems like the leadership here is lagging, and I'm specifically thinking of the male leadership. You can't help but escape that impression when you see that the two heroes of the story are both women, and there's nothing wrong with women being heroes. That's not what I'm saying at all. But it's not what we're thinking in the context of the book of Judges, where all the others were males and many times were military leaders as well as as were called upon as judges to be military leaders. It's just not what we're expecting. And yet you have Deborah, and then you also have Jael. And we didn't read about her, but I think we kind of know that story and how she was ultimately the one, as Deborah warned Barak, I'll go with you, but you're going to, the, the glory of this is not going to end up coming to you. It's going to go to a woman, and that's Jael, and she's the one who's responsible for ultimately doing in this man by the name of Sisera, who is the captain of Jabin. And so our two heroes or heroines in the chapter are ladies, while at the same point, the one male actor who is put forward to us, Barak, is kind of a marginal leader and kind of portrayed a little bit as muted. And it just sort of raises the question, and especially again, and we're going to look at a little bit in this more as we go along, but sort of raises the question, well, where are the men? And beloved, I don't think that that question is out of place in the church today. 
Now, there's a disclaimer that I want to be clear about at the very beginning. I know of no situation here that I'm thinking about. It's one of the relative blessings of, it's one of the blessings of being relatively new. You don't know enough. And, and so I just, you know, if, if I say something and he's preaching at me. No, I'm not. All right. I, I have been burdened about this subject for years and years, really as a product of that which I have observed in years of ministry. And I think the church is very pertinent in the Christian today. Where are the men and where is the male leadership? We understand about the fact that God assigns roles. There are roles for lady and ladies and there are roles for men. We understand all of that, but sometimes men don't live up to their obligations. And really, I'm hoping the message tonight can be a challenge to all of us as men and young men in that respect, because it's one, I think, that we need to hear. Now, I'll admit to you that I have kind of a, an interest in this, a special interest in this. Most of you, I think, know that our daughter Ruth is a single young lady on the mission field. But my observations about this go back way before that and are not just... Uh, engendered by her experiences, although I'm quite familiar with them and know some of the awkwardness and know some of the challenges that she faces uh, in that capacity. But years ago, and I think any pastor will tell you this, you receive letter upon letter upon letter. Sometimes there are several of them in a week. Maybe you go a week, you don't have one, and then the next week you get two or three, but they come from missionaries. And it's always such a burden as a pastor. You get these letters, and unless you can just immediately discard one because you know this person is with a, an organization that you just can't be supportive of or something of that nature, you just your heart goes out. You wish you could support them all. You wish you could have them all, and you know you can't. You would never preach yourself if you had all the people that you got letters from. But we always tried to be aggressive about it. And it's one of the things that I really appreciate about community. I I sense that there's an aggressive spirit here towards missions, and I think that that's commendable. It's, It's one of the strong points, I think, in our church, one of many. But I would get these letters, and I would get letters from single young ladies. And I, I, I'm sure there are pastors, and I'm sure I know some who were leery of them, wouldn't have them. And I understand the challenges. Don't get me wrong. I'm not naive to that. But it was always a special burden of mine, and I would try to make room to have them. It didn't really bother me as long as I got to knew them and to know them and, and vetted them and this type of thing. It didn't bother me at all. In fact, I'd have one. We'd have, have them for the whole Lord's Day. I'd plug her in if she had some kind of ministry capability, and almost always they did. I'd plug her into some kind of a Sunday school opportunity in the Sunday school hour In the morning worship service, if she had any musical ability, I'd use her there. If not, I'd introduce her in the service and tell people who she was. And for the benefit of those who were not going to be back in the evening service, I would I would have her maybe give a brief word of introduction so that people would know where they could meet her after the service was over. And then I would just flat give her the evening service. It never intimidated me or scared me to do that. And... I was very pleased. I think when I left the ministry in Pennsylvania, we had a missionary family similar in size. I've never looked at the exact numbers, but very similar in size to what we have in this church. And we had five single young ladies that were missionaries from our church. And I was proud of that, I think, in the right sense. And I, it's just a burden that I have. And I hope that I can be sincere and well-meaning in the message tonight and that everyone will kind of, from this introduction, sense exactly where I'm coming from. Now, the main part of this message is going to deal with 
Deborah. But if you looked at the bulletin, you see that I've got it broken up into challenges facing Israel, challenges facing Deborah, and challenges facing Barak. So the main part of it has to do with Deborah, but I do want to say, by way of laying some background at the beginning, there were challenges that were facing the nation of Israel at this particular juncture in her history. And I think if we talk about that for just a few moments, it sets the lays the groundwork and sets the stage for what I really want to do is to be an encouragement to ladies who find themselves a little bit in this situation, maybe a lot. And when we get to Deborah, I'll have five quick observations there for you that I, I hope will be an encouragement. But pretty challenging conditions in the nation of Israel at this time. Do you think that we have some pretty challenging conditions in the world today? Yes. Do you think that we have some pretty challenging conditions in America today? Yes. So nothing's really new under the sun, but what kind of spiritual challenges were there? Well, we go back up into the chapter right before this, and we read about two prominent, well, one was prominent. You can divide the judges into major judges and minor judges. Shamgar was minor in the sense that we don't really have much about him, just the closing, verse 31 of chapter 3, but we have quite an extended story about Ehud. And these two men were, roughly speaking, at the same time, and God used them in the, in the life of the nation of Israel. But you know, when you read the book of Judges, you have these rather, I call them depressing cycles, because it seems like God brings a judge, he raises someone up, they lead the nation in a certain degree of repentance, maybe revival, however you want to look at that, and they backslide. And that's exactly what is portrayed to us in verse number one, the people of Israel again. So you have these depressing cycles in the book of the Judges. They again did evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. They backslid again. Now, we have a little hint. Over in chapter 5, let me show you one verse over there. Chapter 5, verse 8. This might give us a slight hint into the seriousness of this particular regression on the part of the nation, this spiritual regression. When Deborah says in the song, When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? So we may have the implication from this that what this backsliding at this particular time happened to be was a, a, a severe regression into idolatry, which seemed to plague Israel throughout her history. In any case, when this type of thing happened, God raised up chastening. God raised up people to oppress the nation of Israel, to come back to him. So secondly, there was a military challenge, and Jabin, it tells us, brought great oppression. The Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor, the commander of his army, uh, we know. And then it says in verse 3, he had 900 chariots of iron. So if you are familiar with Joshua and Judges, you will know that when you read that about the 900 chariots of iron, that's a particularly fearsome detail because that was always a stumbling block to the children of Israel. Now, a quick word of explanation so that we're not too self-righteous about this. This is a pretty fearsome thing. If you think about having only infantry to fight with, and then you think about going against an opponent that not only has infantry but has cavalry, well... That's about what this amounts to, unless you want to start talking about Bradley fighting vehicles or something like that. But they had 900 chariots of iron. Now, 
A chariot, a chariot is a great offensive weapon because it gives you mobility. It's great if you have a plain or somewhat level ground to use it on, not so good if you're in the hill country. So Judah didn't have too much problem fighting people with chariots of iron, but there were tribes that did. And I think I have a couple of verses here for you. So you know Joshua uh, chapter 17 mentions this. Uh, Ephraim and Manasseh are complaining. The hill country is not enough for us, yet all the Canaanites that dwell in the plain. Notice the detail about the plain because that's where the chariots were effective, not in the hilly country. But they have chariots of iron, they lamented. And those in Bethshan and its villages, and those in the valley of Jezreel. Well, that valley of Jezreel that you're seeing in that verse mentioned tonight, otherwise known as the plain of Isdrilon, is exactly the context for our story in the battle that takes place in Judges chapter 4 and Judges chapter 5. They're complaining about this, and Joshua puts it right back to them. To Ephraim and to Asa, you're a numerous people and have great power. You shall not only have one allotment only, but the hill country shall be yours. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it and possess it to its farthest borders. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron and though they are strong. But they didn't typically do it. In fact, here's a notation in the beginning of the book we're in right now, Judges. The Lord was with Judah and he took position of possession of the hill country. Okay, no problem there. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain. Notice again the difference between the plain and the hill country because they had chariots of iron. So this was a great nemesis. This was a great stumbling block. And even though they had God's promises and even though they had reasonable military leadership, this was a great stumbling block to them. So this is the third challenge that's going on in Israel, or the second. And the third, though, and far and away the one that I think is the worst of them all, is a crisis of leadership, what I would call here a stunning lack of male leadership. Now, if you're looking to pin me down and say, document that from one verse, I can't do that. But if you read the chapters, I don't think you'll come away without this impression. So let's take just a quick minute to skim some verses, okay? We'll do this as quickly as we can. But look, first of all, at verse number four. All right, we're reading along in the story. We're used to judges where people like Ehud and Shamgar and all that. And then all of a sudden we just read it. It's, it's kind of like a surprise. It's kind of like, oh, really? And it says, now Deborah was a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was a, was judging Israel at that time. And you kind of think to yourself, if you're not careful and slow down, but when you do and you look at it, you think to yourself, really? Well, wasn't there another Ehud? Wasn't there a... It means nothing to criticize women, but you can't help to ask yourself that. Look down in verse number 6. Finally, when uh, a military leader is, is needed, she has to be the one to take the initiative, and she sends to summon Barak. We see that in verse number 6. Drop to verse 18 or move over to verse number 18. We didn't read the section about Jael, but here it says, Jael came out to meet Sisera again. Where was Heber? I don't know. <laughs> you know, that's her husband. For that matter, where was Lapidoth? I don't know. That was Deborah's husband. As I say, it's not anything we really know. It's an argument from silence. It's just that the men seem to be muted in this chapter. They don't seem to be anywhere around. And it ends up being a woman. And you have to remember, I think you're familiar enough with the story that I don't have to go through all of it. 
But in that culture, it was the task of the woman to set the tent up. So Jael was quite familiar, but still she takes the initiative. She goes out, she sees him coming, she sees an opportunity, she invites him in, he wants some water, she gives him milk, which I think is a detail quite interesting because it helps to the onset of sleep. She covers him with a rug, he says, you stand at the door and watch, be sure nobody gets in here, oh, you're fine. He was real fine. I mean, what happened to him never entered his mind before. That's a dream from which he never woke up. But the hero or the heroine, once again, is this JL. We see that. So then quickly over to chapter 5. There's a summary here of all of these tribes that would not help. And it, it gets kind of wearisome when you start reading this. Look at the latter part of verse 15. Among the clans of Reuben, these were great search, there were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit still? among the sheepfolds, to hear the whistling for the flocks, among the clans of Reuben. There were great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan, far away as they could stay. And Dan, why did he stay with the ships? And Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. Zebulun is the people who risked their lives to the death. Naphtali, too, on the heights of the field. So, you have this enumeration of people who could have helped and wouldn't, which seems to be sort of symptomatic of the overall problem. Down in verse 23, a city is singled out. Miraz, curse Miraz, says the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants. Why? Because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. But notice the very next verse. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber, Heber the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women most blessed. Curse, blessed. See the, the 180 degrees. Cursing, blessing. So I don't think you can walk away without this distinct impression. So now let's come to Deborah then and talk about how we can be an encouragement or how, is there anything we can get out of the story? Are there any points that we can derive from the text so that this is not just designed to be a feel-good talk, to set the stage with a challenge that very definitely exists in the church and then just sort of scratch down a few things on a piece of paper that might be of help, that might be okay. But I think we do need to do more. We need to find some way to take what we have here, even though it's not going to be an exhaustive list, and draw it from the text. And that's what I've endeavored to do in this. Now, don't worry. The first one will take just a little bit more time. But my first thought here for ladies who may find themselves in this situation is make the best of an awkward role. There's not much question that it's an awkward role. Deborah was a prophetess, it says, that here's an interesting piece of statistical analysis. Do you know, of course, we know right away, before I give you this, we know right away to be a prophet or to be a judge normally was reserved in Israel as a male role. I'm not commenting on today's political battles. I'm just telling you the way it is. And... So, in this particular context, you read this, well, here's some statistics that are kind of interesting. Do you know that in the Old Testament, as far as good people were concerned, there are only three people that we know by name, three women that we know by name, that were called a prophetess. Out of all the prophets, only three. There's a verse in Exodus that calls Miriam a prophetess. We have right here Deborah, who is called a prophetess. 
We have a woman in the book of 2 Kings chapter 24, verse 14, who, uh, Huldah, also living in very depressing apostate type times, who was a prophetess. We have one woman whose name we know, but she's a bad guy. Her name was Noadiah. And she was sort of a negative prophetess in the times of Nehemiah, so she wasn't one of the good guys. There's something else kind of interesting in considering not only the awkwardness of being a lady and thrust into what in a nation was obviously clearly a male-type role, but then to consider the aspect of being a judge. You know, every time it seems like you read about these judges in the book of Judges, you have some language. Let me show you chapter 3, verse 9, if you'll flip back to that verse for just a moment. You have some language that seems to indicate that God raised these people up. Chapter 3, verse 9 uh, let's look there for just a moment. Um, so it says, But when the people of Israel cried out unto the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. The Lord raised up. And so that's your typical terminology. If you drop down to verse um, 15, I believe it is, in the same chapter, you'll see that phrase again. And it's it's repetitive. It's 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 up in the book all the time. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer. Ehud. The interesting thing here is we just, it's almost like this is just kind of given to us as a detail. Like I said, it just kind of jumps out at you. No language to the effect that the Lord raised up Deborah. It's a, again, it's an argument from silence, but it's a departure from the normal descriptive terminology that you find within the book. So there are only four examples of any woman, and you have Isaiah's wife, we don't know her name. She's referred to as a prophetess, but likely only because she was his wife and not so much in an official capacity. You only have four examples. You only have nothing in the record to indicate that Deborah was raised up. And something that some Bible students, I I don't know what you make of this. I'm sure there's disagreement on it. But some feel that perhaps her ministry was reserved to a more private role than the typical judge. I could see where you might get this because it says she used to, or it was sort of her habit, to sit under... The palm tree of Deborah, our expression for that would be in the shade tree. But she used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. So there's there's no record in the description of her ministry that she went out like these other judges would and, and to fight or to proclaim. In fact, she finds it really awkward and objects a little bit when... Uh, Barak says, will you go with me? Well, how this came to be, really, I mean, we don't have, as I say, some of this you have to just sort of build from the impressions that you have in the chapter. Over than that, you just have the prevailing sentiment and impression that you get from the chapter. I do find it interesting in chapter 5, verse 7, where it says, the villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose, I, Deborah, arose a mother in Israel. Well, this is kind of interesting is that now you're now you're sort of having her mention herself what would have been much more normative, probably where she was much more comfortable. But somehow she seems to find herself in this situation. And in, in some ways, you can only take your hat off to her. Uh, but there's no hint. And I want to make this point before we leave this. There's absolutely no hint whatever 
that Deborah put herself forward. There are some other inferences as we've drawn uh, just now, but certainly nothing that would indicate that she put herself forward in any way, only that she accepted the task that God seemed to give her in the role that she found herself in cheerfully and with gravitas. Uh, so, as I say to me, really, I think um, the first thought that I would like to say by way of trying to be an encouragement to ladies here tonight that find themselves in a little bit of this is to make the best of an awkward role. Second is defer where possible. And that's exactly what you see in the example that Deborah sets, because if you look at verse 6, well, now it comes time. I mean, she sort of has to boost him up a little bit, but verse number 6 tells us she sent and summoned Barak. Why did she do that? I mean, if she had been some kind of a... I don't, I, I don't want to use a wrong expression, but if she had been a modern feminist, I guess would be as genteel a way as I know to put this, maybe she would have just assumed the generalship. She doesn't do that at all. She realizes that the military role particularly in that society, was really inappropriate for her. And so I think she does the same thing that the Lord did in the days of Israel when they wanted a king. He gave them the best he had at the time. They just jumped the gun. They got Saul for a while, and he didn't work out too well, but it was the best that God had. I think she went after the best person that was available in that particular part of the nation, and his name was Barak, and she summoned him. But there's no hint that she had any designs, whatever, on usurping the role of a, a, a military commander. She realized, obviously, that that was a, a, a role that was unsuitable for her. And so she calls upon him to do this. Thirdly, we need to trust, ladies, all of us need to do this, but trust in God to make you sufficient. There's, again, coming back to the awkwardness of this and coming back again to that verse number seven, and she says, it almost, you almost read in this verse, I, I, there was no one else. I had to do this. But I was a mother in Israel. Chapter five, verse seven. But you know, if we find ourselves in a role that is awkward and difficult, then we can certainly count on God to provide grace and strength for us in whatever situation he may put us. And I find great great comfort in that. I mean, it's not just true of women who find themselves in this in this awkward situation. It's true for 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 all of us when we find ourselves uh, sometimes God does this, I think on purpose, puts us in situations that we're a little bit uh out of what we're comfortable with. And it just helps us to remember more and more that we have to depend on him. Once in a while, I would tell this to our people. I don't think they believe me, but I'd wake up every Sunday morning, and I think it was just God's intent. I'd wake up every Sunday morning, and I'd feel most of the time off, physically off. And I'd feel like, man, I just, I'd like to feel better. I'd like to feel more energetic going to church today to preach. And then I'd get there to church and I'd sit on the platform and I'd think to myself, I'd feel to, feel to myself like, you know, I don't think I've ever done this before. And I had to get over those jitters. I had to get over that nervousness. And I always found that God was with me in that. And the evening service was somehow different. I guess, you know, you get into the 
into the role of it a little bit, but God does this. Um, I wanted to point out something to you. This is one of my favorite verses, and I, I guess I know it a little bit more in the language of the King James, but look over to verse 20 in chapter 5. Um, is that what we want? No, okay, I've got the wrong verse. It is verse 20, but I'm looking at the wrong thing. Here it is. From the heavens the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. So how did this military victory come about? Partially because they went out there and fought. There is our responsibility, but partially and for the most part because God sent an incredible storm. Read about this in the next verse when it says, The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, march on my soul with might. All right, now what happens if the battle takes place in a plain, they have all 900 chariots, but it's situate, it's proximate to the river Kishon, which they did not expect to be a problem, but God sends a torrential rain, it overflows its banks, and instantly 900 chariots of iron are not an asset, they are a huge liability. And this is how God upends these people. And Barak and that crowd come down out of Mount Tabor. They chase after them like, like the Confederates do in the rebel yell. And these people are scattered and there's a tremendous victory that God gives. But the, the instant phrase that I'm interested in is the stars in their courses fought against. Do you know God has the very powers of heaven to grant to you and me when we find ourselves in a position that He has put us in and doing His will. God doesn't have limitations, we do. And sometimes God lets us fill those limitations, but God's got the assets, always has the assets. Even the stars in their courses seem to fight when God calls them to. Some of you who like history might know this, but um, do you know the name Shelby Foote? Shelby Foote is a Civil War historian. He has a major work, a major three-volume work, and it's, I believe, out of print, actually. I had to look a long time till I finally found that. Finally found a set of those books in a second-hand bookstore in, in uh, Berkeley Springs, West Virginia. It's like it weighed 20 pounds when I had those books in a bag going out of that store. But Shelby Foote, in addition to that monumental work, has a couple of smaller, but he has one smaller book that's devoted to the Battle of Gettysburg. Well, one of the things he points out in that book is that, you know, when you're talking about July 1st, which was the first day, July 1 through 3, 1863, is the Battle of Gettysburg. When you are on the first day, basically, as the day evolves, it's basically the, the Confederates' battle to lose. I mean, General Richard Ewell put the Union forces into disarray and flight. And they retreated to the high ground of Cemetery Hill. Well, Lee had sent a communication to Ewell in which, and this has been debated by historians for years, but in which he said, take the high ground if practicable. Well, it got late in the day. And as you know, generally speaking, in the Civil War, they did not fight at night. Richard Ewell did not find it practicable. Someone made the remark later, in looking back at this, that if Stonewall Jackson had not died a couple of months before in the Battle of Chancellorsville, he would have definitely found it practicable. Because what happened that 
when, when you will finally call his troops back at the end of the day, the Union forces, the Confederates spent the entire night listening to the Union soldiers digging in on Cemetery Hill. And you, you end up really with a reversal of what happened at Fredericksburg where the Confederates won a defi- decisive victory over the Federals because they occupied the high ground. Anybody knows anything about military strategy, but you will surrender that advantage by not pressing on that night and taking that, that high ground. But it's Or you could use the example, what about Dunkirk? You know, I mean, if you look back at World War II and you look back at Dunkirk and you say to yourself, well, why didn't Hitler go after the British troops at, at Dunkirk and destroy the army? He, had, he could have. He could easily have. But the Wehrmacht was, you know, I mean, they had been pressing relentlessly. Hitler thought he had a few days to consolidate. He didn't worry about it. Their backs were to the sea. He thought that he would have the victory. What he didn't know was that the Polish had captured a German Enigma cryptograph machine. The British could read their messages. The British knew this. The British knew that Hitler wasn't planning to press the advantage for a couple of days. And what did they do? They rescued those people out of there. You see what I'm really trying to illustrate is it doesn't matter what your military prowess is. It doesn't matter what it looks like is going for you and on your side. If God is on your side. I remember an old-time evangelist that said, you and God make a majority. Well, the fourth thing is, encourage where needed. And that's exactly what Deborah does. Barak says in verse 8, well, I'll go, but you're going to have to go with me. You can tell she's a little off-put by this because she's, well, I'll go, but just know that the glory isn't, of this is not going to go to you. I, probably he thought it meant her, but it didn't. It meant jail. It was a prophecy on her part. The road on which you're going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. But she went. She didn't refuse to go. She encouraged him. She didn't go out there fighting, but she went with him and was the moral support to him. God bless women that do that. I'll tell you that is many a man hasn't has figured out that he wouldn't have gotten anywhere if he hadn't had the moral and other support of the wonderful woman that God brought into his life. And uh, so... You have this here. I mean, uh, she encourages him. Verse number 14, you know, the language becomes a little bit more pointed. Deborah said to Barak, up! <laughs> what does she encourage him with? God's promises. She says, this is the day that the Lord has told you about. He's going to give you the victory today. And she reassures him that God is on his side. God has promised. God has committed himself to giving Barak the victory. And the last thing is to give glory to God for anything that it's accomplished. And I'm not sure that we really have anything like chapter 5. You have that song of Moses in uh, Exodus. But other than that, I don't really think that we have anything that quite quite equates to a a hymn of praise that takes up an entire chapter. I just want to point out a couple of quick verses to you in the light of this. Verse number 2, that the leaders, that the leaders took the lead. That the people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. See, it's, it's all about praise to God. Bless the Lord. Verse 9. My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people of Israel. Bless the Lord. We're going to have Thanksgiving here soon. It'll be time to bless the Lord in a special way. But that's what this is. Verse 11. To the sound of musicians at the watering places... There they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs 
of his villages, villagers in Israel. Then down to the gates marched the people of the Lord. Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, break out in a song. Well, it's pretty obvious that not only did she not seek to put herself forward, but did cheerfully what God gave her to do, she certainly had no intention of gloating. She gave God all the glory for this. Well, very quickly, what kind of challenges did Barak face? And this, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. I don't want to beat Barak up. I mean, he's not totally lacking in military skills. She didn't call on him because he was a zero with the rim rubbed out. He knew something about what he was doing. And he did have the courage, ultimately, to come down from the heights of Mount Tabor and chase after these people. And he's mentioned in the Hall of Faith, what more shall I say for time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, there he is, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. So you can't just... You can't just not give him some credit for this, but the other side of the coin, you have to be fair with the text. He did fail to fully embrace the task that God gave him, and he ended up, as we read here, having to recede into the background. And even though he was chasing Sisera, Sisera got out of that chariot in a hurry when it bogged down. And he ran, and he got in that tent and thought he was safe. And finally now, Barak shows up, and J.L. says, Come on in. I've got the guy you're looking for. I don't know what he thinks. He probably thinks, well, maybe she got him in there handcuffed. I don't know. He goes in there and he looks and goes, oh. I see what Deborah was talking about. Give God the glory. Barak clearly has military skills, but he failed really to embrace the task that God gave him and to really capitalize himself on the promises that God gave. What can I say? to men tonight, to try to be an encouragement to us. Rise to the challenge. Fully trust God. And accept the role that He's given. This verse comes to mind. I think about three years ago I preached on Father's Day on this verse. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Folks, I don't want to labor this tonight, but there's a place for men. And that's what this says here. I realize men are kind of endangered in the day in which we live. But the political climate is kind of what I'm referring to. But act like men. You know, if you go and look at this verse and study it in the original, that word that's translated men is the is is not the generic word, anthropos, for a man. It's on air. It's the word that singles out a man by his biological gender. So if you can, this is meant to be on the light side. If you're a man, identify as a man. Take the place that God has given you. Believe that God's grace is sufficient to enable you to lead and to do the things that he's called you to do. Thank God for brave women. This has nothing to do with diminishing women tonight. It has everything to do, though, with encouraging them. But the need of the hour is for strong men and men with convictions to match. I'm going to show you some verses, and I'll close with this. But years ago, I I never really knew if I'd live long enough to say this, but I guess I have. And I, I kind of think, wow, 50 years ago. I used to hear people say that, and you used to say, oh, yeah. 
But it was. Right about 50 years ago, I was a freshman at Bob Jones. And we were a part, our family was a part of a, a new church. It was a, like a church, not a church plant, but it was a, a, a new church that had been formed. People had left another group and started this church. And we were actually meeting in a, an old movie theater at the time. And I don't know exactly how the leadership, I know that the leadership of our church was seeking help from Bob Jones and different things, but so it, it came a certain weekend and they had invite, invited Dr. Gilbert Stenholm. I, I know a lot of people here tonight remember him. I really remember him with a great deal of fondness and affection. He was the director of ministerial training and extension at Bob Jones at the time when I was a student and, and for a number of years after that, of course, but they had invited him to preach. And I don't remember if it was a weekend-long meeting or exactly how that was, but as memory serves, I actually rode down in the car with him to Charleston from Greenville. And so I got the time in the car with him, and then I got the time in the car on the way back, and that was, that was priceless. But in one of the messages, one of the key messages he preached on this text, let me show you a couple things real quick. And the word of the Lord came to me. This is God speaking to Ezekiel, son of man. Say to her, you are a land that is not cleansed or rained upon in the day of indignation. The conspiracy of her prophets. Now notice prophets. Her prophets are no good. In the midst of her is like a roaring lion tearing the prey. They have devoured human lives. They have taken treasure and precious things. They have made many widows in her midst. Her priests, the prophets are no good. The priests are no better, have done violence so forth and so on. Down to verse 27, look there. Her princes, they're no better. In her midst are like wolves tearing the prey. Verse 28, her prophets are mentioned again. And then verse 29, her people. So what have you got? The prophets, the princes, the priests, and the people. And none of them are any good. Sounds like it was written for today. And so what did God do? I sought for a man. among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land that I should not betray it, but I found none. And what is in the next verse is the scariest part of the whole thing. Therefore I have poured my indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. I have returned their way upon their heads, declares the Lord God. And he got up and he preached on that. I sought for a man, but I found none. He got to the end and he gave an invitation to men that would be willing to take whatever challenge God sent their way. As I recall the invitation, he asked for men that felt led of the Lord to respond to that, to stand. I was a teenager and a freshman at Bob Jones at 18 years old. And that sermon gripped my heart. And I stood up. I just want to tell you, by God's grace, you can stand up. You can do what God has called you to do.